Доброго вечора, ми з України. You are listening Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is our collaborator and your host and Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people currently on the ground in Ukraine and important academic experts in Slavic studies. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR for the Pacifica Radio Network. My guest is Dr. Colleen Lucy, a professor of Russian and Slavic studies at the University of Arizona, a specialist in Russian literature and visual culture of the 19th century. She is the author of the book, Love for Sale, Representing Prostitution in Imperial Russia and of numerous peer-reviewed articles and chapters. Some of the topics covered in this interview are the history of the Ukrainian-Russian conflict going back to the 13th century, the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev, and the end of the Soviet Union, the possibility of another Russian revolution, the use of the Ukrainian language as a return to its national origin and identity, and the consequences of the current war ahead for Ukraine. Welcome, Dr. Lucy. Would you describe your department at the University of Arizona and your fields of study? Thank you so much. The College of Humanities is known for producing critical thinkers who have strong knowledge of a second or a third language and use their skills in the humanities to transform their work environment in the greater public. We're really training students to be globally minded. And in the Department of Russian and Slavic Studies, we teach students higher proficiency in Russian language and offer a wide range of courses preparing them for cultural engagement with the peoples of Eastern Europe and Eurasia. And that includes Russia and countries of the former Soviet Union, so countries of Central Asia, the Baltics, and some countries in Eastern Europe. So the department is known for a wide range of courses that prepare students for thinking about the legacy of the Soviet empire and cultures in connection. And also it's important for today's global economy more generally. This is a country and a culture that I've spent my adult life studying and inspiring others to devote significant time to do the same because I believe that the culture and the history is worth studying, that it teaches us something more about ourselves. And so I spent 10 years bringing students to Russia, and I also worked at a theater conservatory called the Moscow Art Theater, one of the leading institutions for training modern acting. And in my experience working and traveling and bringing students to Russia, I was always enamored with the ways in which it brought perspectives on both sides. And what's happened now is that kind of broadening of horizon has completely closed, shutting down of all study abroad to Russia, sending Russians to study abroad or making it very difficult to get them abroad means that there's no citizen diplomacy anymore. You have taken students to Russia and you have lived there yourself are you able to communicate with your Russia friends and colleagues? First and foremost, of course, I want to acknowledge people who are suffering in Ukraine through Russia's war in overt and covert ways. 
that is really important to preface discussion with, with the primacy of suffering and the loss of life. Now, in terms of my engagement with Russia, it's very difficult in conversation on WhatsApp or through text or Instagram or other social media. What I sense now is something that I can only connect to with what people told me that they experienced in the Soviet period, and that is self-censorship. That the Russians that I've known for years were now speaking in this kind of double speak where direct criticisms or confrontations, questions about public policy or the government's role in the war in Ukraine are not directly discussed, but rather a kind of roundabout way alluded to. And people have to understand this kind of self-censorship is something that Russians remember from the Soviet period. But the difference is now that we have phones and apps that track us and that can be verified to show a political position. And so a Russian could be stopped on the street and asked to show their WhatsApp messages. And if there's something questionable in that content, the ramifications will be serious, most likely. And there are already examples of this. And so self-censorship and the kind of turn towards, one could say, despair that I feel from my Russian friends and colleagues is a very serious one because this conveys something that is worrisome about resistance to Putin's regimes in Russia. And that is they feel that their actions are woefully incomplete against a state machine and the apparatus that is all but crushing any forms of dissent. And that's a hard place to be in. Does the department have a public statement on the war? Yes, shortly after the war began in February, the department came together alongside the president of the university to condemn the invasion of Ukraine as an act of unparalleled aggression. And like many other universities and other Slavic departments across the U.S., we came out universally against the war and what it continues to do in terms of disrupting the rights of individuals to live normal lives. And in the Department of Russian and Slavic Studies, we also continue to work towards an understanding of cultural legacy and the differences between Ukrainian and Russian cultures and cultures of the former Soviet Union more generally, because it's an essential aspect of understanding what's happening right now. This is not a war that started overnight. This is something that has been ongoing for centuries in terms of Ukraine's fight for independence from Russian autocracy. Questions of identity that go back centuries are really important to contextualize Putin's Russia, which tries to show Ukraine not as actually having a language of its own, but that really is just a form of Russian. And this really has, has a damaging effect on Ukrainian identity because it marginalizes it. And I believe there's a general delegitimization in the 19th century that then continues onward. And politics on national identity that stretch back centuries have continued to inform the thinking of Putin and his cabinet and how they're discussing Ukraine as not a nation, but rather an outpost of Russian identity to the present day. How was Ukraine perceived in the 19th century under Tsarist Russia? Outside the central location of Moscow and St. Petersburg, the periphery was under the constant gaze of the imperial empire and under the control of the emperor of the Tsar. And it became part of the mindset of the Tsar to hold Ukraine under the Russian imperial forces. The 19th century is crucial for the development of national identity. It becomes crucial for Russian autocracy to make Ukraine a subject of an imperial gaze. And by this, I mean that 
Ukrainian language and literature and culture became subjugated to different forms of marginalization. And we can see this with how Ukrainian writers are trying to fight for an independent country and an independent identity, but their writers are being dismissed. Ukraine, of course, prior to the 19th century, had its own literature, its own culture, and its own language. And so the way that Ukraine is perceived in modern-day Russia delegitimizes centuries-long traditions. Would you say that what's happening now is on a line, say, straight from pre-Russian revolution? I think there were moments on my mind, especially in Gorbachev, because he passed away this week. There were great possibilities. When Ukraine declared independence ostensibly in 1991, it really was the end of the Soviet Union. Ukraine became the model for other post-Soviet states to declare their independence as well. It gave a model for an independent nation completely of its own design, led by the people. And by the end of the 90s, it had come full force into a European mindset that was connected with Europe. And the war did not have to happen. Ukrainian sovereignty could have been recognized and Russia remained safe in its perception of itself as a global leader. But there's something about Ukrainian sovereignty that so threatens Russian autocracy that caused such an egregious human rights violation. And I think there's something quintessential about the relationship between these two nations and Russia's own identity crisis, that it can't have a nation on its border that is outside its sphere of influence. And that is certainly similar to the imperial syndrome of the 19th century and the Soviet period as well in the 20th. I'm curious as to whether or not you think another Russian revolution is possible. It's a question that political scientists are asking right now and people who are dedicating significant amounts of research and time and energy to studying the circumstances in which people revolt. What I would say now is that there's a great hope that there will be a turn towards democratic-run movement that topples an autocratic government that squashes any form of dissent and that really clamps down on self-expression. That said, 2022 is not the same thing as 1917. And if we study our lessons of history, we know that in 1917, the repercussions of World War One, the isolation of Russia from the rest of the world did produce a particular moment that allowed for the Bolsheviks to lead a revolution. But what I think the difference now is from what we know from data and surveys is that the Russian population is largely isolated and largely in line and in agreement with government policy. Now, to what degree those surveys can be trusted is questionable, but the informal conversations that have then been traced and documented by scholars and ethnographers, the Russian population generally at this moment is heavily influenced by state media. And that is not the same at the beginning of the 20th century. And that is not conducive towards a mass change in public approval or disapproval of the leader. So to answer your question, while I hope that there is a change in the regime and a future in which Russia can lead a democratic government, I also believe that Russians from the post-Soviet period on are very weary of drastic changes. And one of the ways that Putin gathers support is by recalling the era of the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, after Gorbachev's policies of perestroika and glasnost, 
after the fallout and the disastrous years in which people didn't have enough to eat and there was wide unemployment and a kind of malaise in society on the one hand and on the other, a great opening up and a sense of potential growth, that period is remembered now very starkly as one that was extremely difficult and horrible to live through. And so to talk about revolution means to be willing to go through that. And most people are not. The trauma of the end of the Soviet Union is too raw at this moment. And then also the complete clampdown on any form of dissent makes it almost impossible to envision what a revolution might look like. You know, when resistance is so impossible in an autocratic state, there's no room. How do you gather in a square and actually communicating with one another in real ways? And that's why we see 15 years imprisonment for sharing a post on Instagram that is anti-war. That's why we see such a crackdown right now in Russia, because it is so threatening to have people gather and discuss and protest. We are hearing from Dr. Colleen Lucy, professor of Russian and Slavic studies at the University of Arizona. I am your host, Anne Levine. Thank you for joining Ukraine 242. Colleen Lucy. I'd like to talk for a minute about the Ukrainian language in Ukraine. The network that I work with, Kraina FM, made a mandate in 2015 that they would only broadcast in the Ukrainian language everything. No English, no Russian, no French. How unusual is that? I think that is a sign of a more general shift in the cultural consciousness in Ukraine and in many of the former Soviet republics a return to one's national origin and a celebration of what was forgotten or what was marginalized or what was oppressed and what was not allowed and what was punished. And a shift towards Ukrainian identity, towards Ukrainian language and Ukrainian music is also a search for national identity and restating one's sovereignty in the context of Russia's increasing dominance in Eastern Europe and the threat that it sees in nations like Ukraine that were formerly in its sphere of influence declaring independence from Russian identity. So in an odd way, and maybe in a paradoxical sense, stations like Ukraine FM that are insisting on Ukrainian identity while absolutely worthwhile and within their right uphold a mantra within the state propaganda apparatus in Russia that Ukraine is squashing out any form of Russian identity and losing itself in its roots, and that there's, in fact, great discrimination against Russian speakers in Ukraine, and that, by the way, there's a genocide of Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. It becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy whereby Ukrainians assert their independence, their autonomy, their right to culture, their right to tradition, the right to recognize that their language is a language separate from Russian, At the same time, the Russian media being able to use that as a sign that, in fact, Ukrainians don't know who they are. They don't know what their roots are, their traditions, because only Russian identity really matters. And I would say this is a tragic characteristic of the current and past 
Russian conceptualizations of peoples who lived both within the empire and beyond its borders. For an example, to give you kind of a a kind of anecdotal uh, evidence, when I first moved to Russia as an exchange student all the way back in 2003, I lived with a Russian family and we became very close. And I asked questions about different nationalities within the Russian Federation. And I turned to my host dad, who's highly educated, and I asked him to tell me, what are some of the ways that Ukrainians differ from Russians? You know, just very interested. We see Ukrainians in, in Hollywood films, all you know, usually stereotypes, not very different from Russians, but they seem to be a a separate ethnic identity. Here I am, you know, 19, 20 year old trying to figure out the world. And my host father turned to me and said, well, Ukrainians are just, they're just the same thing as Russians. I had forgotten about that exchange until Russia invaded Ukraine. And I realized Russians in mass, the public consciousness has a completely paternalistic attitude towards Ukraine. And this is a huge disservice to themselves and huge disservice to Ukraine because you don't understand that these are different traditions. Do they overlap? Is there shared heritage, shared culture and folklore? Of course, but these are people who are different. One would never claim in 2022, for example, that Ireland and Britain are the same thing. I mean, uh, that would, you'd be laughed out of the room. Why is it the case that a Russian could say this about Ukraine? It's a poverty of imagination and it will haunt Russia forever until it comes to terms with who it is and who it is not. Do you think that the Ukrainians are doing a disservice to themselves by squashing Russian language? I mean, who am I to say what Ukrainians should or should not do about their national heritage? I believe it is a natural tendency to want to assert one's autonomy in ways that are legitimized. I think there's room for hybrid identities. And by this, I mean Russo-Ukrainian identities. Gorbachev, for example, himself was half Ukrainian. Many of my friends, some of my professors were Russo-Ukrainian in graduate school and undergraduate and exchange programs that I ran. There was always the connection there based on the op-eds that I've read, based on the scholarship that I know, and based on the people who are writing about this, and a lot of energy thinking about these questions, that there has to be a reckoning in which Ukraine is allowed the space to identify its national tradition, its national culture, and to separate itself from Russia in a way that makes sense for Ukraine. Now, as I say that, we talk about nations as homogenous entities, as if there's one form of Ukrainian and there's one form of Russian-ness. But really, it's a very diverse population with differing perspectives on identity, on belonging, on language, and questions of family legacy. So I think that while we try to say how Ukraine should look right now in 2022 and how it should act or how it shouldn't. We have to remember that this is a process that's been long in development, that the 19th century Ukrainian poet Taras Shevchenko writes a lot about in his poetry, which is the nationhood of Ukraine as such should be valued and respected and that it is something to take pride in as a Ukrainian. And that's a beautiful thing that is that anybody can connect with. The question is, why is this so threatening to Russia? Why is it so threatening to have this on your border? And I think it's about a larger question of Russian identity and the need to assert primacy and control 
and to place itself within a global marketplace of ideas, which delegitimizes a Russian perspective on questions of economic security, of global transaction, of national literature and identity. And so Russia asserting itself in this way can again gain a kind of global importance that it did not have until this moment. In this country, we are taught about Russian literature and the great works in that canon. Could you point to some Ukrainian works that we should pay more attention to than we have, perhaps? Certainly. One writer that comes to mind is Taras Shevchenko, who was born a slave and then gained his independence and became a celebrated painter, writer, and national poet. His writing is very written in the romantic vein and is very accessible through several translations by really good translators that convey the beauty of the original. And I think Shevchenko has become a kind of symbol for national identity right now in a way that he kind of latently was before, but now it's become kind of really prominent. And the second writer that I would mention, because I think that he brings to like really important questions about Russo Ukrainian identity, is Nikolai Gogol. And Gogol is most famously known for writing works that are absolutely comedic and funny and wonderful to get through because they point out the stupidity of bureaucracy in ways that anybody can identify with, but especially Russians and Ukrainians. And Gogol himself was born and raised in Ukraine, and he incorporated the first part of his, of his literary career, was really devoted to reimagining his Ukrainian upbringing, his Ukrainian childhood for Russian-speaking audiences. And so he filled it with these Ukrainianisms. And he identified in complex ways, both as Ukrainian and Russian. And then later on in his life, dismissed this Ukrainian identity and became much more nationalistic in his thinking. If you read those early works, the Ukrainian tales, they're full of elements of folklore and traditional beliefs and are very magical in their rendition and the, re and the imagination of the Ukrainian countryside. And they are, quite frankly, wonderful reads and also immensely complex, which is why people love to study them. So those are two 19th century thinkers. But then for modern audiences who are interested in drama, I would recommend Natalia Varajbit, who is a contemporary playwright and who writes about questions of identity specifically for the stage. And many of her works have been translated as well. And of course, there's a lot of really good Ukrainian-Russian poetry around war right now. And so I think looking at those kinds of, of compilations that use both Ukrainian and Russian, to think about questions of identity and belonging during a time of turmoil really, really register with American audiences because it's quintessential to how we think about our identity. We're very much a diverse population. And I think that those questions register with today's audiences. Well, Dr. Lucy, this has been fascinating, and I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Oh, I'd like to thank you so much for doing this vitally important work and for covering Ukraine and making this area of the world more accessible to English-speaking audiences.
and reaching out specifically to Ukrainians for their perspective and reaching out to American academics who care deeply about this region and want more people to do the same. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Dr. Lucy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Dr. Colleen Lucy is a professor of Russian and Slavic studies at the University of Arizona, a specialist in Russian literature and visual culture of the 19th century. She is the author of the book, Love for Sale, Representing Prostitution in Imperial Russia, and of numerous peer-reviewed articles and chapters. Luminaries in Ukrainian literature mentioned in this interview are renowned author Nikolai Gogol, poet Taras Shevchenko, and playwright Natalia Vorozhbit. Thank you for listening to Ukraine 242. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting for the Pacifica Network from WOMR, Provincetown, Massachusetts. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg. Recording by Michael Levine. The luminaries of Ukrainian literature mentioned in this interview are renowned 19th century novelist, short story writer, and playwright Nikolai Gogol, G-O-G-O-L, the poet Taras Shevchenko, also known as Kobzar Taras, or simply Kobzar Shevchenko, S-H-E-V-C-H-E-N-K-O. 
Kobzar, K-O-B-Z-A-R, and the modern playwright Natalia Vorozhbyt, V-O-R-O-Z-H-B-Y-T. The music in today's show is the traditional Ukrainian folk song, Unharness Your Horses, Boys, by Moscow Cabaret. If you wish to send a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, please call 510-883-3115 and record your message. It will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast throughout Ukraine on Kraina FM's 24-station radio network. To see pictures of Dr. Lucy and all of our guests, go to ukraine242.com. Thank you for tuning in. Until next week, this is Anne Levine.